0: The universe is big. In the words of uh, Douglas Adams, it's really, really big. I don't know, I don't know if you enjoy astronomy or physics, um, but um, I, I, I grew up with a, a physics teacher as a dad, and so he spent a lot of time talking to me about the, the mysteries of the universe. And what I really enjoy studying is actually sort of the history of physics and astronomy. And and how those things sort of feed into each other. And and one of the things that I've noticed is that that man is constantly trying to comprehend the immensity of the universe. I don't don't know if you have um, any idea or if you could even conceive of how how big the universe is. Our our modern estimates are that it's 98 billion light years across. Um, And and if you want to try to sort of um, put that in perspective, I don't really think it's possible. Um, But but a light year is how far light travels in one year. Um, In in one second, light travels 186,000 miles. That means in one second, light could circumnavigate the globe seven and a half times. That's one second. Now we multiply that by 60 and we have a minute. We multiply that by 60. We have an hour times 24 times 365. Now we're at one light year. Now imagine 98 billion of those. That's that's how big the universe is. Is And, and there's, there's a common theme um, for, for physicists and astronomers who study uh, the universe, its makeup, how it's put together. And, and that is this. They all realize that it's too big for it just to be about us. And when you look at the immensity of the universe and you look at Earth's position in it, you begin to comprehend that we're really nothing. We're a tiny dust moat in the scheme of the universe. And I think that frustrates scientists. As they look at the universe and as they study the universe, they want to comprehend, you know, what's, what's our, we don't really, it doesn't really seem like we matter. I was listening to a scientist give a lecture one time, and he said, the universe is too big for it just to be about us. And he was making the argument that there must be extraterrestrial life. Uh, One one of the leading physicists uh, of our modern age was Stephen Hawking, who passed away in 2018. I don't know if you know this, in 2015, he dedicated $100 million to start an institute to discover extraterrestrial life. Now, he's convinced that if we found it, they would destroy us, but he really wanted to find it. He didn't have a a chance to find it. His his discovery initiative um, is still going to this day, but he passed away before he's able to find anything. But, But what motivated that? What motivated it is this reality. The universe is too big for it just to be about us. It's so huge, there must be life somewhere else. But then if you study life and what's necessary for us to have life, you begin to realize that the only explanation of life on our planet is supernatural. There's not enough time or matter in the universe for us to be able to have the, the planet that we have and the place that we have with the resources we have so that we can live. You see, scientists are right. The universe is too big for it to be just about us. As a matter of fact, it's not about us at all. The immensity of the universe, the complexity of its design points towards its true purpose. The purpose of our massive universe is singular. It's to glorify the creator. It's to honor the one who made it. You see, what what you're studying when you look at science, when you look at theoretical physics, when you study mathematics is you're seeing the design with which the designer put everything together. And the response of the creature should always be, glory be to God. Why? Because he created it. And because he created it, because he is the one who existed before everything, and because everything came from him, that means everything's for him. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, he says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. That's a pretty extensive list right there. Look at Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Look how, often, look how Paul is using the word everything and all. He's leaving nothing out. Because everything was originated by God, before He is before all things, but because all things hold together by Him, everything's for Him. It's all for His glory. There's nothing that exists outside of His power and authority. Now, what what does that mean for the scientist who studies creation? For them to acknowledge that is to acknowledge that everything is for God and not for themselves. And here's what you need to understand. If everything is for God, then all glory belongs to Him. And man in our rebellion against God doesn't want to believe that. Man in our rebellion against God wants some glory for ourselves. This, This is why we have so many secular humanists in the sciences. Because for them to acknowledge a divine originator would have to be to acknowledge that they don't deserve any glory, they're a creature. They came from God. They exist for God. And they refuse to die to their own ego. They refuse to acknowledge that their existence requires a divine originator. Because everything came from God, because everything is for God, everything is for the glory of God. Now, you hear me say that, and, and if you've grown up in church or spent any amount of time in church, then you hear that often. It's all for the glory of God. But that's, I think, become one of those, ki- those Christian catchphrases, right? We say that all the time. What does that mean? What, what's it mean when we talk about The glory of God. So before I get into Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus is going to pray for God's glory to be magnified in his death, before we get there, we need to define our terms. What is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? I like this definition that John Piper uses to describe the glory of God. He says, It's God's holiness made public. It's God's holiness made public. If God's Holiness, think of it this way, if God's holiness is the sun, then his glory is the rays. It's the display, it's the manifestation of his holiness. Think think about this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his Glory doesn't say holiness. You might expect that. Why? Because glory is the manifestation of the glory of God. It's his holiness made public. Now, the, the, the way that, that God's glory works is that he designed us all to put that glory on display, that you're created in the image of God. There, there's no glory apart from him. Now you might think, well, yeah, there's, there's lesser glories. No, the only glory that you have is that you're created in his image. And then the new creation, you know what what glory the new creation has is that they're being transformed from glory to glory. They're looking like the image of his beloved son. You see, the, the fall was our rebellion against our created purpose. Do you remember what it was that the devil used to tempt Eve to eat the fruit? Eat the fruit, and what will happen? You will be what? Like God. You'll have some glory for yourself. That's the lie that mankind has been believing from the beginning. I want some glory for myself. I want to be like God. You can't. There's no lesser glory. Why? Because he created you. Your function is to bring glory to God. That's what you were made for. I want you to understand this. Redemption brings the locus of glory back to its proper place. It it brings the purpose of you as a a creature, as a creation, back to your purpose. This is what you were created for, not for yourself. That's why in Christianity, what happens? We die. That's where it starts. It starts with death. It starts with me dying to what? The pursuit of my own glory. Trying to be like God. Trying to find my own reputation, honor, fame. I die to all that. Why? Because that's what I was created for. Because this is what glory is. When Jesus showed up and he lived a perfect life, the way that he sought glory was markedly different than the culture that surrounded him. Because fallen humanity, they pursue glory by seeking to honor each other. We all give each other rewards. We all give each other honor and praise and accolades. And and that's it, right? That's it. That's keeping up with the Joneses. That's what what life is all about for so many. And Jesus comes along, and he doesn't buy into that gimmick. He doesn't live in that system, and they don't know what to do with him. They don't understand. How do we deal with somebody who doesn't care what people think of him? How do we deal with somebody who's not pursuing the same things we're pursuing? Jesus really sort of explains his purpose in John chapter 5. So we're going to go to John 5 before we get to John 17. Because I don't think you can really understand Jesus' prayer if you don't know where he's coming from. Let's jump back to John chapter 5, verse 41. Jesus says this, I do not accept glory from people, but I know you. You have no love for God within you, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? I want you to understand this, glory-seeking precludes belief. Jesus says the reason the crowds can't follow him is because they're still pursuing honor from mankind. Stop that. You don't need that. That's not glory. That's a cheap imitation. There's only one source of glory. It's God himself. And in Christianity, we recognize it. Jesus said this in verse 19. He says Jesus replied, "Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things." This is the story of the Gospel of John. I hope that you've been getting it as we have been going through John. What does Jesus live for? The glory of his Father. That's his singular purpose. And you hear him talking about it over and over and over and over again. I had to delete a I had to delete a lot of Verses out of my sermon because I was like, "Oh, there's that one, and there's that one. Oh, I can't leave out that one," and then I had to, so that we could finish today. Because that's what he's talking about in John. He's talking about I live to bring glory to God. How did he do that? By not doing anything on his own. By not doing anything independent of his Father. He did everything independence upon the Father. He lived in perfect union with the Father. Why? Because that's how mankind is designed to live. That's the life that he invites us to. Do you understand that that life that was in Jesus that we're invited to was seen, was manifest as he lived how we are supposed to live, in dependence upon the Father. He demonstrated the life that we're called to follow, and it was one that was not lived for his own glory, but was lived in dependence upon the Father what did he do? Whatever the Father showed him. What does that mean? The Father gets all the glory. That's how you are to live. And and throughout that whole time, Jesus didn't ever seek his own glory. Now, Jesus was glorified. Jesus was praised. And when people would worship him, he would not turn them away like the apostles did. Why? Because he was worthy of that glory, but he didn't seek that glory. What do I mean? Look at John chapter 8. Jesus says this, If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. Jesus says that your glory, you fallen humanity, you are glorifying yourself. And that's nothing. That's not glory. That's an imitation. It's fake. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. Jesus didn't buy into the system that so many of us are in. We're seeking reputation. We're seeking accolades. And what, what, Here's the lie I tell myself. Well, if I don't have a good reputation, how am I going to share the gospel? If I don't have a good reputation, people won't listen to me, right? I got to have street cred. That's how this works. If people are going to pay attention to what I'm saying, I have to have a good reputation. What Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. Seek the glory that comes from the Father. Don't worry about what men say about you. Don't worry about how men see you. There's only one glory that matters. It's the glory that comes from the Father. I, I hope that we're all progressing towards that That life that Paul described where his only boast was in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all he has. What do you have, Paul? Jesus. Jesus died for me. God redeemed me. I'm a son of God. What does that mean? That means that praises from men are like water off a duck's back. That's cute. That's nice. It's nothing. Nothing. I'm known by God and I know God. Why do I need man to notice me? See, it's a lie. It's a lie we all buy into. Believing that we need people to pay attention to us to give us a value. We don't. The creator of the universe sent his son to die for you. This is what you derive your identity from. This is who you are. Now, this is the life that Jesus lived. He lived a life that sought to glorify his Father. He lived that life as a perfect example. But here at the end, he prays that the Father might glorify him. Let's look at the text. This is John 17. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he might give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. This prayer, John 17, it's the most glorious prayer that we have recorded in all of history. And what's Jesus praying for? Glory. Glory. Really, these first five verses can be summarized this way. Jesus prays to be glorified. It's a, it's a simple prayer with profound implications. And what I see in the passage is Jesus is making three requests of his Father. His first request in verse 1 is, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. Glorify me that I might glorify you. Now, it's interesting. This is, this is sort of a summative prayer because all of Jesus' life has been lived for the glory of God. God has been glorifying him. Jesus has been glorifying his Father. But what Jesus is talking about here is a unique glory that's going to happen in this particular hour. But let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. So all of Jesus' life has been about this, but now Jesus says, okay, the hour has come. Now, John chapter 12 through 20 is called the book of glory, and it begins, it commences in chapter 12 where Jesus makes this statement. He says, the hour has come. Up until chapter 12, what is Jesus saying? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. We get to chapter 12, the hour has come. What's the hour? He tells us in chapter 12. Look at John 12, 23. You might remember this is occasioned by the Greeks coming and asking to see Jesus. And this is a sign to Jesus that the hour has come. And he replies and says this, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. What is the hour of glory? What's the hour that Jesus is talking about? Do you get it? It's his death. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. The hour of glory that Jesus is talking about is his death, and it's about to happen. We're here at the end of the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' closing prayer for that discourse. Judas is on his way. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to go to trial and then go to the cross. The hour of glory is here. How does the cross glorify the Son? And glorify the Father. But that's that's not how we would define glory. We don't don't look at the hero dying as glory, but Jesus does. Why is that? Well, Well, listen to his words just a few verses later in John 12. He says this, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I want you to understand this. As Jesus knows what's about to happen, his soul is troubled. He's in turmoil. He's about to take the sins of humanity upon himself and drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. And his soul is troubled. And what does he say? Should I pray for deliverance? Should I pray for deliverance so that I don't have to go through this moment that's troubling my soul? And what's his answer? No, why not? Because God's glory is on the line. I want you to get this. What you see at the cross is Jesus preferring the glory of God over his own troubled soul. Do you get that? That's why it's glorious. Because you see the perfection of humanity in Christ right there where he chooses instead of preserving his own life, he submits to the Father. He lays down his life. No one takes it from him. Nobody kills Jesus. You understand that? You don't kill Jesus. He gives it up willingly. He gives it up gloriously. Even the the centurion Standing there, witnessing. Remember what he says? Surely this man is the son of God. And it says that he glorified God as he witnessed Jesus' death. This man submitted himself to his father's will. Why? For the glory of God. At the cross, Jesus' perfect life was perfected. What what do I mean? Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter five, verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I want you to think about this for a moment. When you or I die, we can't help it. Do you remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, which of you, by worrying, can add a single moment to his lifespan? You can't even add a second to the time allotted to you. If you're put on a cross, you die. Why? Because that's all you have a choice for. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Why does Jesus die? Because he gives up his life. I want you to understand that God created us with this, this instinct to survive. Do you get that? that that's one of the, the reasons that we do silly things. Like when a Bug hits your windshield, you duck. That's so silly. It's not going to hit you. You've got a windshield. You're okay. The butterfly's not going to hurt. Why do you duck? Because you have a survival instinct. God's built it into you, and it works faster than your own thoughts. That's why you do that. Because God designed us to try to preserve our own lives. Jesus had that in his human nature. And you know what he did? He chose the glory of his Father over that. And his perfect life was brought to completion in that moment. There was no more glorious act that anyone ever did than Jesus giving up his life for the glory of God in that moment. Nothing compares to the glory seen at the cross when Jesus chooses the glory of God. And I want you to understand this, that glorious moment, the Father is glorifying the Son. Jesus says when he's lifted up from the earth, what's gonna happen? He's gonna draw people to himself. And what happens for us is when we have eyes to see and we see that cross and we understand what's happening there, we get a glimpse of the reality that God is supremely worth it, that living and dying for his glory is what it's all about. And guess what happens? We're drawn to him. That's how he draws all men to himself. Jesus prays to be glorified. And here in John 17, he makes three requests. His first request is, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. The second request he makes in verses two and three, he says, glorify me that I might give eternal life. Glorify me that I might give eternal life. Now to see this, you need to see how verses two and three are connected to verse one. So let me put verses one through three on the screen right here. Now I read this a moment ago. But it's a little bit difficult to see how verse 2 is built off of verse 1. But it's tied together with a word. Look at the very beginning of verse 2. It starts with the word since. Since. That word since right there is connecting what verse 2 is talking about to what verse 1 is talking about. How are they connected? Well, what's he just now said? He says, Father, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. So what's Jesus' purpose? He wants to glorify God. The Father, I want to glorify you, Father. I need you to glorify me so I can glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the connection. The way that Jesus is going to glorify the Father is by giving eternal life. That's how he's going to glorify the Father. The way that Jesus glorifies the Father is by saving saints, by building the church, that's how God is honored. How does that work? Well, understand this: when you're given eternal life, you die to self and you raise up to your eternal purpose, which is what? To bring glory to God. This is how He glorifies the Father. is by recreating us as saints designed with a singular purpose now to honor God with all that we are and all that we do. Jesus gives eternal life so that his Father might be glorified. Now now the next question I have is, okay, Jesus is giving eternal life so that the Father might be glorified, but let's focus in now on verses just two and three. Hopefully you see the connection there. The next question I have is, well then, what is eternal life? And you might think, well, that's really easy. It's eternal life. What's interesting right here is that, is that Jesus in his prayer does not define eternal life as life that goes forever. He defines it differently. See if you can find Jesus' definition of eternal life there in verse 3. And I'll give you a hint. He says, this is eternal life, and then he defines it. So it sort of helps because he says, this is eternal life. You can find it there in verse three. This is, what's eternal life? What's his definition? Here, I'll highlight it for you if you have trouble seeing like me. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they might know you. I want you to understand this. This is eternal life. Relationship with the Godhead. That's it. That's eternal life. You see, we, we get so caught up with they shall never perish. That's a reality, but that's not the, the life that you're invited to. The life that you're invited to, the life that Jesus gives you, is relationship with the Father. That's what you get. You know, that's what you want. Jesus has authority. Do you see that in verse 2? His authority is he gets to invite you into relationship with his Father. He has the authority to do that. His authority to give you an invitation to the throne room of God. He invites you into communion with the Father. And how does he do that? Through himself. Through union with the Son, we have access to the Father. Through his broken body, through his shed blood, we are in relationship with the Father. This is eternal life that they may know you. That's what you have. That's what you've been given. And I want you to understand this. Your eternal life starts at the moment that you confess Jesus as Lord. It starts at the moment where you go under that, not not the literal water, but you truly go into the grave with Jesus. You die with him. What? So you can raise to new life. And that new life has a singular purpose. Now I live not for myself. The life I live in the flesh, I don't live for myself. How do I live? I'm living it in abject dependence upon God. Why? So that he gets all the glory. Oh, that's what my forerunner did. That's what Jesus Christ did. He lived in that dependence so that God would be glorified and dying and rising with him. Now I live in the same way. And I live that way through communion with the Father. Eternal life is relationship with God. God, do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? Have you have you beheld Him? Have you seen the glory, the beauty of Christ? See, that that's that's what draws us to Him. That's what beckons us into eternal life. It's that we want to know Him. Here's how you can tell if you know Jesus. If you know Jesus then that has more surpassing value for you than anything else. That's the most valuable thing that you have. That's your singular boast. Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. I think oftentimes we read Philippians 3.8 and we think that Paul is is the exception to the rule. You know, he's somebody who really had to go through a lot of suffering when he came to Christ. He had to lose everything. He's not the exception to the rule. He's the rule. That's how it works. You come to Jesus, you lose everything. Jesus if you don't hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. That's what happens. And I want you to get this. The reason you hate your own life is because you've beheld the beauty of the Lord. How could you ever be satisfied with anything else? You've seen his glory. And now you're invited into relationship with him. Now you're invited into intimate relationship with him. He's going to call you his child. You're going to grow in knowledge of him, of his love. You're going to spend your life coming to know him more and more and more. And as you come to know him more and more, you know what happens? You're transformed from glory to glory. You begin to look more and more like him. And one day you're going to see him. And then you'll be like him because you'll see him as he is. That's what it's all about. That's what we live for. For that's who we are. We have beheld his glory. How how did that happen? Miraculously. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What draws you to God is the glory of God, and how you witness that glory is the person and work of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? The same way God created light. Do you see that's what he's saying right here? The, the same God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that God who created light out of nothing, he created light in your life out of nothing, out of your darkness out of your inability to see or grasp or comprehend, he opened up your eyes. And what did he show you? He showed you his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. If if what I'm saying right here is is resonating with you, you understand what I'm saying. But if you're you're feeling like it's blurry, you can't quite see it, you want to comprehend, then cry out to Jesus. That's what everyone who's invited into relationship with him does. Eventually you get to the point where you say, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see that. I want to see what Pastor Caleb's talking about. I want to witness that. I want to get that. And all who call upon the name of the Lord, you know what's going to happen? He's going to save you. He's going to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, mind to understand. If you want to see, ask. Ask. Seek, and you shall Find. Now you see what happens is when we behold His glory, we're spoiled for all lesser glories. That the things of earth just don't have the same wonder anymore. Living for what's gonna fade, what's gonna tarnish with the using it, just it doesn't get me excited like it once did. Let, let me let me explain this this way, and this is maybe maybe a, a crude illustration, but it's the best I could come up with. So um, let's talk about Godzilla. <laughs> 1954, you know, my film buffs, maybe you guys know this. Um, Godzilla in 1954, the special effects that they use on this film were cutting edge. It was, this was insane. Like people were scared out of their minds when they saw this movie, right? And one of the reasons for that is because prior to this special effects, primarily used stop motion, right? Like Gumby, you guys with me, right? Where you just have a bunch of photos and you put it all together, you know? And the monster's just not as scary when you're using stop motion. You know what they did in Godzilla? They put a guy in a monster suit and he moved and they filmed it. Yeah, that, now sometimes they use the puppet, but it was crazy. People, people were blown away with these cutting edge technologies, these special effects, and you see this today, what do you do? You laugh, you sort of giggle. <laughs> That's cute. That's a nice little Godzilla. Why? Well, maybe because you saw 2019 Godzilla King of Monsters, right? <laughs> the special effects are a little bit better. And, and what, that, what that means, you know, if you go back and you watch a movie that like, you were just blown away by the first time you saw it, you go watch it now, you'll be like, why, why was I so impressed? What did I think was so amazing about this? Because you've seen something that looks more real. Now, understand this this is an argument from the lesser to the greater, much lesser to the greater. Because once you've beheld the wonders of Jesus, everything else is seen for what it is a cheap imitation. It's nothing. I don't need that. I don't need your honor. I don't need your fame. I don't need your praise. I don't need your glory. I I don't need your toys. I don't need your pursuits. I don't need your life because I have new life. Now, now we don't live like that all the time because we're still mucking our way through this world. And we so often get our eyes stuck on Earth-bound realities, and we forget about these realities. And so that's why we're here. We're here to remember. And if, if I'm doing my job correctly, then, then you're catching glimpses of the glory of God because that's all that preaching is. It's me trying to use words to describe what can't be described with words so you can witness the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ so you can see the glory of God in the face of God of Jesus Christ. This is why you come to receive eternal life, not because you want to get out of hell, but because you want to get into relationship with the everlasting Father, because you've seen His Son. You've seen that glory, and you want to know Him. Jesus prays. In His high priestly prayer, He prays to be glorified. He makes three requests His first request is glorify me that I might glorify you. Second request we just now saw is glorify me that I might give eternal life. And the final request I see here at the end of the passage is glorify me with the glory I had before. Glorify me with the glory I had before. Look at John 17, four and five. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus says, Father, I've glorified you upon the earth. That's it. That's the summation of the life of Christ in the gospel of John is that he glorifies the Father. And now he says, I want to be glorified with what? The glory I had with you before the world began. Do you understand what Jesus is claiming in this prayer right here? He's claiming deity. He's claiming he is God. Remember, God does not share his glory. Jesus has that glory. Jesus is God. And he wants that glory. Now what Jesus is not asking for, Jesus is not asking Father, add something to me that I don't have. That's not what he's saying. See, what happened when when Jesus came and he lived among us, his glory was veiled. It was not removed. He didn't cease to have glory. When he's saying glorify me, he's saying, Lord, unveil that glory. On On that Mount of Transfiguration, it wasn't fully unveiled. Otherwise, Peter, James, and John would have melted. Would have been destroyed. Just a little bit was brought back. A little bit of that veil was pulled back in Jesus I want that veil to be removed from me again. What, what am I talking about? Paul explains this from Philippians 2. He's talking about Jesus and he says this, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Would you understand this? He existed in the form of God. What does that mean? He was glorious as God is glorious. He for all of eternity had the glory of God. Well, what happened? Paul explains. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Now, now think about what this is saying. This is not saying that the glory that Jesus had was removed from him. It says he emptied himself, but how did he do that? By taking on the form of a bond servant, by coming in the likeness of man. His glory was veiled so that he would look like one of us. And he looked like one of us at the the level where he had no form or comeliness that we would desire him. People saw Jesus. You know what they saw? They saw a dude. That's what they saw. They saw a man. But if they observed his life, they saw the glory of God. If they followed him around and they listened to his words, they heard the word of God. When they saw the way he loved humanity, they saw the love of God. Why? Because Jesus was the Word made flesh. Jesus is praying here that he might have the glory he had before, not because it was removed from him, but because it was veiled for a time as he walked upon the earth. And he's saying, Father, restore that glory. He came as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And then what did the Father do? The next three verses, the Father answered Jesus' high priestly prayer. What did Jesus pray? Father, glorify me with the glory I had before. Look what it says next. For this reason, God highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is glorified. What's the result? Everyone admits that he is glorious. Everybody falls down before him as sovereign Lord over all creation, but not everyone gets saved. You see, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. But only those who recognize in this life that the purpose of this life is not to live for this life, but to bring glory to God. Only those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and that locus of glory has been brought back to its proper position. Only those will stand on that day and receive that well done. And that well done means you live for my glory and not your own. You live for my reputation and my renown and you died to self. And your greatest possession was relationship with me. You live for me and not for yourself. Now enter into your rest to the glory of God the Father. It's a, it's a glorious thing to witness a saint who lives all for the glory of God. My my grandmother passed away two weeks ago and um, she was a glorious saint. And uh, I was talking to my aunt this week about a conversation she had in my grandmother's final month of life. And and my my grandma was, was bedridden for the last couple of weeks and my aunt was talking to her and she was just sharing with her what a blessing it was to witness her faithfulness. She said, mom, you've been so faithful through your whole life. And my grandma looked at her and she said this. She said, and God gets all the credit. 94 years old. She doesn't want credit for a single work that she did in this life. Why? Because what I witnessed in my grandmother's life wasn't my grandma. It was Jesus Christ living through her for the glory of God, for his fame, for his renown. And what I want to challenge you to do today is to stop living for yourself to give up on yourself, to die to yourself, and to confess him as Lord for the glory of his name. This is what you were designed for. This is what you were made for, to confess him as Lord for the glory of his name forever. You only have this life to make this decision, to stop living for yourself and to surrender to His Lordship. And that's the challenge I want to make to you today, Lord. I thank you that you have opened eyes, Lord, and I pray for more open eyes today. Pray for ears that hear, minds that understand, hearts that comprehend the incomprehensible. The God of this universe sent his only begotten son to die for us, to redeem us, a people for his possession, that we might glorify your great name lord help us help us to see all the ways that we're chasing after what fades what perishes with the using but we've been redeemed we don't need these things help us to live as the resurrected humanity that we are for your glory for your renown for your great name i pray in jesus name amen